Let's pray together. Would you open our eyes, Father, to behold wonderful things from your law. May the word of the Lord be heard today. May it be understood. May it be treasured in our midst. Would you send your mighty spirit to work this word into our hearts. And may the glory of Christ be exalted in all that we do. For indeed we confess and we believe salvation belongs to the Lord. Would you magnify your splendor as we continue to learn from the life and the ministry and the reverberant echoes that come to us from your servant Jonah. We pray for skill and understanding and for a softness of heart as we receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. It's in Christ we pray. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. I invite you to return to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Continuing our study that we began last week, landing ourselves in this next segment, roughly chapter 2, but as we'll see in a moment, the episodes that unfold will situate ourselves here in a moment. But nearly 170 years ago, the American author Herman Melville wrote what some have regarded as the greatest book of the sea ever written. Didn't get much traction in its own day, but after Melville's death, it really rose to prominence, became a beloved work in American literature. As perhaps most of you can remember from reading it in high school English, and probably not since, maybe not, maybe, who knows, the story depicts the maniacal quest of Captain Ahab, obsessed with taking his revenge against the giant whale that bit off his leg on a previous voyage. Overt biblical allusions just run through this work and appear throughout, many of which, as expected, are from the book of Jonah. In chapter 9, a preacher aboard the ship retells the ancient tale of Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And he says this, Beloved shipmates, clinch the last verse of the first chapter of Jonah. And God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the Scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is this canticle this song in the fish's belly. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is the lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? It is a lesson of willful disobedience of the command of God. Now certainly, the book of Jonah teaches us that the wages of sin is death, and that to run from a sovereign God is to run toward death itself, as we discussed last week. 
But as we'll see this morning, the very instrument that appears to consume and destroy Jonah once and for all will become in the hands of a sovereign God the very instrument of his salvation. Into the depths of Sheol, the realm of the dead, Jonah will descend. But a prayer for deliverance is not what the prophet offers, rather a prayer of thanksgiving, as if he recognizes his salvation is underway. So last week we considered the breakdown of this majestic book, and we said it falls into seven distinct scenes. Now, these scenes can be divided up even more. They can be paired together to make fewer than seven, but for our purposes and for our ability to hang the progression of the story together, we find ourselves in this third of seven episodes that unfolds the story, each describing with this high degree of of parallelism and repetition the ideas that continue to build until we're left hanging, as we said last week, at chapter 4, wondering, what will Jonah do? Wondering what God will do. And perhaps, most importantly, we're left wondering, what will we do? In chapter 1, we were introduced to Jonah. You can allow your eyes to scan back over the chapter. We were introduced to this fugitive running from the presence of the Lord, a man who prophesied in the 8th century during the reign of King Jeroboam II, one of Israel's most wicked kings, and experiences a personal unraveling of his soul when God speaks to him, calling him to take the message of repentance to some of the most wicked, despised people on the planet, Nineveh. One location after the next, we see evidence of Jonah's life spiraling downward. Jonah leaves Gath Heifer to go down to the seashore at Joppa, only to go down into the belly of the boat. But further down he'll go as he offers himself up to be hurled overboard. Down down, down to the depths of the deep blue sea, as the children's song goes. And all this, Jonah will confess his personal identity as a Hebrew who worships Yahweh, but simultaneously he'll confess that he's actively running from Yahweh so others might not become worshipers of Yahweh. The contradiction is front and center. Death is preferable to obedience for Jonah. And once thrown overboard, the sea that had been growing ever more tempestuous by the minute ceased its raging. How can we read chapter 1 and this account and not be struck by its similar companion story in the life of our Savior as He too was sleeping in the belly of a boat while at sea in the midst of a great storm. And Jesus was also awakened by fearful sailors, His disciples, telling Him they were about to perish. But unlike Jonah, Jesus simply speaks. He simply speaks to the storm in order to bring about a great calm upon the sea. Who is this, they say? Who is this? that even the winds and the waves obey Him. 
Well, indeed, as Jesus will tell us, someone greater than Jonah is here. Chapter 1 concludes in our English Bibles with verse 17, but the Hebrew text makes it clear that this this verse really begins as an entry point into the next scene, the next idea, setting the stage. As we'll see here, perhaps this is a helpful contrast or actually a Uh, showing the relationship, the parallel ideas between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, a certain progression of events was made clear. There was a crisis, right? A storm. There was a prayerful response on behalf of the sailors. There's a deliverance from this crisis, followed by the offering of sacrifices and vows by these sailors. In chapter 2, the same progression of events takes place in parallel, complementary ways. A crisis, drowning in the sea. A prayerful response, finally, on behalf of Jonah. A deliverance from the crisis of death, followed by the offering of sacrifices and vows to the Lord. The author is artfully crafting his point so we don't miss it. If chapter 1 conveyed Jonah's senseless running as a dove, as we said, living up to his name, chapter 2 conveys Jonah's sensible praise for God's mercy toward him, expressed in the form of a psalm. As is true for all of Hebrew poetry, poetry is intended to hit the brakes. Isn't it true? Have you ever tried to read even English poetry quickly? It doesn't work too well. You're intended to slow down. The author wrote it so that there was intentionality with the way it works together to slow down your thoughts and to consider and to think and to reflect so you don't miss the significance. Jonah's poetic psalm from the belly of this great fish is intended to slow us as the readers down to contemplate the importance of what is being communicated. So simply formatted for our purposes here that follows the the flow of thought here, we see in the first two verses, verses, verse 17 and verse 1 of chapter 2, the sovereign submersion of Jonah into Sheol. A great fish swallows him. We see then in chapter 2, verse 2 through 9, Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord, followed by the concluding thought that the sovereign salvation Jonah enjoys is indeed belonging to the Lord. As Yahweh's unexpected rescue operation begins to unfold. So let's consider now these first two verses as we enter into this third and next segment of Jonah's majestic book here. Verse 17 reads, follow along, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Verse 17 might very well be that most famous verse that people have heard more than any other of the 48 verses in this book. 
may be the most well-known. And as we enter this third of seven episodes, it's not surprising to find that the Lord, Yahweh, is the lead actor. He's governing. He's sovereignly in control of each successive circumstance, carrying out His perfect plan through it all. The story's use of key words and themes help us draw out these significant events and the significant characters. So you'd be kind of blind to not see some of this repetition. The Lord does what? He appoints. He appoints. The word appoint appears four times in the book, and it's always in reference to God's sovereign control over the elements of nature to teach Jonah a lesson. Just as God will appoint this fish, He'll appoint a plant in chapter 4 to provide shade, and He'll appoint a worm to eat that plant that He appointed, and He'll appoint a scorching wind to assault Jonah. All these natural elements are used in God's sovereign plan to draw out Jonah's heart in love. Another repeated word is the word great which is mentioned 14 times in Jonah, and here describes the submarine-like magnitude of the fish, specially appointed by God to swallow His prophet. So what is, so, so is the great fish God's judgment of Jonah, or is it His salvation? Think about that question for a moment. Is the fish intended to be God's judgment against Jonah, or is it His salvation? Imagine if Jonah's story just stopped halfway through verse 17. It's done. You know, our obvious conclusion would be, wow, God is a holy God, not to be trifled with. And while He showed mercy to the sailors, wow, Jonah got what was coming to him, and we better be warned end of story. And this element is is true as far as it goes. As one author notes, though, he says, the fish in the story has a dual function. On the one hand, it is a means of correction and instruction. But on the other hand, it's a means of salvation. In prophetic literature, judgment and salvation are usually not alternatives from which God's people must choose. It is not salvation or judgment, rather salvation through judgment. As another author writes, Jim Hamilton, he says, salvation always comes through judgment. The reality of judgment should keep us from thinking of God in purely sentimental terms as though He were a grandfatherly buddy who just lets things go. The reality of salvation should likewise keep us from thinking of God as merely a terrifying, vengeful judge. So the book of Jonah is about God's glory in salvation through judgment. So in love, God sovereignly arranged every detail so Jonah's senseless running would land him in the worst possible predicament imaginable. This was to show him that sin kills. 
Running from the presence of the Lord always leads to the realm of the dead. But repentance and faith resurrects the soul as hope is fixed on a God in whom belongs the salvation of humanity. I wonder, though, as we consider in your daily conception, as we think about this juxtaposition of salvation and judgment, in your daily conception of your relationship before the Lord, how aware are you of God's salvation through judgment? How aware and cognizant are you of this? Do you treat your sin in such a way that reveals that you view God as that grandfatherly buddy who just lets things go? Perhaps this is true of you. And this is why the works of the flesh just continue to grow in your life, bothering pretty much everyone else but you, concerning everyone else but you, and why your view of sin grows weaker and weaker. Brother or sister, boy or girl, if you presume upon the grace of God, it may well lead to a life that eventually proves there was a bankruptcy of saving faith from the start. Hebrews is in our Bibles in part to yell to us, beware, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We hear the Apostle Paul's warning to Christians taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness. He says, awake, awake. O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. On the flip side, I wonder if you treat your sin in such a way that you daily feel as if God is perpetually and constantly angry with you. As if He is constantly doling out little hardships one after another in direct proportion to your sins. Something like this. At 9.02 this morning, Rich was jealous about the superior abilities of someone else, and he entertained negative thoughts about them. So God does some quick math, and He says, okay, jealousy is a 6.5 on the sin scale. Therefore, we're going to cause a pipe to burst in his basement this evening. (laughs) Boom, one for one. It's silly, but I'd venture to say we think in those categories more than we want to admit. What was the thing that, that led to that? Instead of viewing the normal challenges, again, as believers, instead of viewing the normal challenges of life as opportunities in which we must trust the Lord in a fallen world and rely on His all-sufficient grace, we view them as one-for-one retribution from a cosmic law enforcement officer, which leads to the kind of relationship you have with the police officer who's sitting on the side of the road, typically. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) nothing to see here, just moving right on. Thank you very much, doing a great job. Leave me alone, type of a disposition. God, just nothing to see here. You don't need to smash me again with something bad. (laughs) Do we view the Lord in this way? This is not intimate communion and fellowship with God. 
as he's designed? Jesus tells us, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You are my child. It's only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, do we know a love so deep and abiding and steadfast that it casts out fear of condemnation and judgment. But only in the gospel do we see how horrific a death Jesus accepted and took on our behalf. Salvation through judgment for us. Both of these realities must be held together lest we deviate from a true understanding of either one. So after introducing God's appointment of the great fish, we are told of Jonah in its belly, three days and three nights. Well, concerned to make Jonah's story more palatable for modern contemporary readers like us, some scholars have come up with some pretty incredible theories, honestly. Pretty entertaining. A, a, a laugh, I believe, came out of my, my mouth when, uh, when reading some of these. Uh, such as the idea that Jonah washed ashore after being hurled overboard and, and recovered from the whole ordeal by spending three days and three nights in a local inn called The Fish. <laughs> that, that is creative. That is imaginative theology at its best. Uh, I think it's best to simply recognize three days and three nights for what it is. A miraculous amount of time. It's what it is. Nobody's going to stay alive in that amount of time. 30 minutes still might be amazing, but three days, three nights, certain death is the point. This guy has no shot. But the Lord sustains him miraculously. Well, the book of Jonah is unique in many ways, but specifically for the way Jesus himself interprets his own ministry to be a kind of fulfillment to that of Jonah. Would you turn with me to Matthew 12 for a moment? Matthew 12, verse 38 through 41. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. We read there, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus has already done a great number of signs and wonders, and most of these are well known and well attested before the religious rulers. And when asked for yet another sign... Jesus says, listen, the only sign you're getting is the sign that is Jonah. And it's all you're going to get. 
meaning the only thing yet to be witnessed by the Jews was Jesus' own Jonah-like death and resurrection in which he would die, spend three days in the heart of the earth, and rise again. Now, lest we get tripped up on the three days and three nights and allow ourselves to go the route of thinking there's some sort of uh, misstep or misinterpretation or an aha, look, the Bible's not accurate moment here. I think any portion of a day, typically in the mindset of the Hebrews, would have been sufficient. Any portion of a day to count for that day. So to simply say three days and three nights was very likely to represent a, a, a more flexible understanding of those three days. We, in our scientific mindset today, have such a maximal precision mentality, and sometimes we force that onto the Bible in ways that don't allow for its natural common usage of certain words in certain ways. So in that way, the, the terminology works And what a merciful God to place the story of this senseless prophet who runs from God in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And get this, not as a negative example. He hasn't been too stellar up to this point. But perhaps as is true with other saints that we find given great glory later on, though their earthly life was quite a mess in some cases. The Lord uses this experience, the salvation through judgment for Jonah to draw out fulfillment language for himself in his own ministry. Something greater than Jonah is here. And as amazing as Jonah's journey to the realm of the dead is and as his resurrection is to the land of the living, it is nothing nothing compared to the victory of Christ Jesus over all the powers of hell and death. What comfort, what delight we as new covenant believers have to position ourselves where we do and to look back and to see God's glory fulfilled in Christ. Jonah 2 verse 1, returning back to Jonah now. Reads, then Jonah prayed to the Lord from God, his God from the belly of the fish. So finally, the first time in the story so far, we hear Jonah actually pray to the Lord. The prayer Jonah will begin to offer to the Lord is one of desperation. It is not one of desperation, pleading for deliverance, as you would imagine you and I would do if we were in a similar situation, calling out, oh, please, Lord. Get me out of the worst possible place I can think of. No. It is a prayer of thanksgiving for the salvation Jonah believes he has already received. All the language is positioned in this way. And after introducing Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving in these two previous verses, we now read his prayer to the Lord in verses 2 through nine. So follow along as we read. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, 
and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, Jonah's prayer begins in verse 2 here, which gives away the whole story in a nutshell, doesn't it? So we read simply that, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. What follows that is an extrapolation and a meditation on that verse. It appears a genuinely contrite, repentant heart is being evidenced finally by God's prophet. The Lord had to bring him to the lowest possible place in order for him to lift his heart again to the Lord. As described earlier, Jonah's prayer moves cyclically in and out of the themes of crisis that we saw earlier, prayer, deliverance, and then worship. Crisis, prayers, deliverance, words of thanksgiving for being delivered and then a vow to worship the Lord and to forsake idols. These form a certain parallel to what is evidenced from the mariners, the sailors in chapter 1. The same themes at work. The prayer as a whole is steeped in various phrases and allusions from the book of Psalms. In what we just read, those eight verses, there are direct quotes or allusions to 15 different Psalms. What should we conclude from that? Jonah knew his Bible. Jonah knew the Psalms in particular very, very well. They were a part of him, such that when he doesn't have a scroll right in front of him, they are so in him that they form the content of his prayers. How's your prayer life these days? Are they biblically informed, or are they more shaped by the Hobby Lobby type signs of life that we come across? generic, sort of mostly true, but not saturated in the Word? Do you talk to God? One of my favorite things that we do as a church is the prayer project each spring, where we take three hours together just to pray the Bible, read Scripture, turn it into prayers. That is a skill for life, invaluable to the life of a believer. 
I encourage not only that event, but that is a practice in all of life. If you're struggling, how do I pray? Pray the Bible. Pray what God has said. Turn God's words right back to Him. Praise Him for it. Thank Him for it. Well, in Jonah's words here, he describes himself as being in the very belly of Sheol. The belly of Sheol. So it's helpful as we read Jonah and even the Bible in general to understand something of this ancient Near Eastern, ancient Hebrew mindset as it pertained to nearness to God and, and distance from God. So we think about that, it's, it's helpful imagery here. Oftentimes, nearness to God was approximated to where one stood in relation to the heavens, where God's presence was believed to dwell. How many times did God appear to Israel or the patriarchs or prophets on mountains? How many times did He make covenants with them on mountaintop altars? From Mount Eden, we presume, to Mount Moriah, to Mount Sinai, to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. Nearness to God was often associated with nearness to the heavens. And to the contrary, the furthest place from God's presence was assumed to be the depths of the earth, specifically the depths of chaotic waters. This was the realm of the dead. This was Sheol, a place of spiritual and physical darkness and death, absent of God's blessing and His presence and normally divine cursing. And this is where Jonah descends. It is the polar opposite of where you would wish to be. The world was reminded this summer of the ever-present danger of the ocean's depths, wasn't it? With the tragic death of five individuals aboard the company Ocean Gate's submersible Titan that intended to explore the wreckage of the Titanic but ended up imploding, and all lives were lost. Only the Lord knows, right? The total number of souls that have been lost to the open waters throughout millennia. But it's hard not to see why Jonah is considered as good as dead. Having been thrown overboard into perhaps the worst storm ever to arise on the Mediterranean, Jonah longs, he says, to look upon the holy temple of the Lord, but all he sees are the roots of the mountain, as we read. A prayer grows with resolve as verse 7 confidently asserts that Jonah's prayer has indeed reached the Lord's holy temple, even as his life was faint, fading away. In verse 8, Jonah denounces idolatry and recognizes what is forfeited when idols are worshipped. Worshipping idols always means walking away from and forsaking the hope of God's steadfast love. Our idols today are quite different than in the ancient world, but all it means is that we erect something in our hearts that is so desirable so beautiful, and, and we believe the lie that it can satisfy us, no matter what it is, whether we can hold it in our hands or not, 
that it can define us, give us meaning, purpose, joy, even save us. But always, always to bow the knee to the bales, so to speak, of this world is to walk away from the gift of steadfast love. Our Lord calls us to a singular heart before Him, that we would not simply add Him to the shelf and worship Him as we desire in addition to every other thing that we love more than Him. No. He alone belongs salvation. As we read in verse 9, the final phrase of verse 9 gives us one of the most memorable summaries of all the Bible, really. Some even call this the very center of Scripture that just thematically guides and governs it all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to Him. Did Jonah deserve God's salvation? No, not at all. And though he's in the belly of a great fish, he's able to sit with a stored-up mental bank of truth that informs his praise. He knows salvation does not mostly belong to God or impartially to us. It's in the domain of a sovereign God. As we see the conclusion to this third episode in in our successive walkthrough of Jonah's story, verse 10 provides a fitting conclusion to Jonah's prayer. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Just as the Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, in verse 17 of chapter 1, now the Lord speaks to the fish, and it obeys. It vomits out Jonah on dry land, preparing Jonah for his grand recommissioning ceremony that is about to begin in chapter 3. This may be the most pleasant moment of the entire story, quite honestly, right here. As things appear to be resolved and buttoned up, God's sovereignty and salvation has been affirmed. Jonah's heart is soft and repentant toward the Lord. But oh, we have much to learn still from this senseless prophet who is still a son of God's faithful love. So as we conclude our thoughts this morning, we may rightly be encouraged to glean from Jonah's example of repentance or even the importance of prayerfulness, even the importance of thanksgiving in the midst of great turmoil, to give thanks to the Lord, or by the vanity being warned of paying regard to those vain idols and the dire cost it takes in forsaking hope of God's steadfast love. But when brought into focus alongside the whole of Scripture, we see an overarching application for us that extends to virtually every corner of our lives, brothers and sisters. And it is this, Jonah calls us to behold the Christ, the one who is greater than Jonah. It's impossible for us, this side of the cross, to read of Jonah's 
sovereignly appointed three-day journey to Sheol and His resurrection to new life and not have a deepened love for the greater death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As one author says, he says, the fundamental purpose of the book of Jonah is not found in its missionary teaching, merely. It is rather to show that Jonah being cast into the depths of Sheol and yet brought up alive is an illustration of the death of the Messiah for sins not his own and of the Messiah's resurrection. As mentioned earlier, Jesus Himself made this connection for us, specifically, helping us see the wonder of His greater abandonment, the abandonment of His Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And His cry of dereliction, in which the Father made Him to be sin for us, Paul writes, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The presence of God, the very thing that Jonah was running from, away from the presence of God, was what Jesus cherished at every moment of His earthly life. It was snuffed out for you and for me. But this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised up, Peter writes, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. He did not abandon His soul to Hades, nor let His Holy One see corruption. No. Because, as the old hymn that we sing each Easter, up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph for His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. He arose. Christ arose. God's glory and salvation through judgment has been set on full display for us and for our salvation. Our role is to receive this greater Jonah by faith as our Savior and Lord and to yield not just a corner of our lives, all of our lives in joyful service to His cause. In fact, we might even say that each Lord's Day is our own little recommissioning ceremony. We come to remind ourselves, as Justin led us this morning, in the scriptural prayer of confession, that we would not slowly become enamored with ourselves and start to listen to the lies and the voices of our world that does not bow the knee to Christ. We become inflated with our own opinions, and we forget just how much we deserve the judgment of God, leading us to so minimize the nearness and the, the treasure that is our forgiveness in Christ. Are you beholding these gospel realities 
regularly, brothers and sisters. Don't think that it was just that starter fluid to get you going in the Christian life and you can move on to bigger, better things. Yes, there's more to learn, of course. None of us will master all the Scriptures and then plumb the depths of it, but never leave the most cherished realities. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and that salvation has come to us through the one greater than Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you beholding these? Are they a part of you? Do you understand yourself to be so united with Christ that in His death and resurrection, as we sang about and Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, you find your own death to sin and resurrection to walking in newness of life before Him? The symbolism of baptism conveys this very reality. Have you heard Christ's call to identify with Him and His church, to go with Him symbolically to that watery grave? and to rise with Him, to walk in newness of life. Or perhaps you've never understood the substitutionary work of Christ in the place of ruined sinners. Perhaps you are not a Christian this morning. Friend, remember, it is good to be duly warned by Jonah's folly. Jonah followed his heart, you might say, in our modern language, even to the point of death. He did what he thought in the moment would make him happy. Whatever Tarshish represented, it was an escape. It was what he wanted in the place of and instead of following the hard path that is bowing the knee to God's Word and God's ways. He chose to reject God's counsel and didn't realize how destructive those choices are, even when he descended in his death march to the worst possible place imaginable, Sheol. Proverbs tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. And for every person insistent on charting their own path for their life, they will one day know the emptiness of that path. But Jonah came to his senses And he remembered and he confessed, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is the sole proprietor of the salvation of human souls. There is no other route to God's presence than through faith in the finished work of Christ. So friend, come to him today. With open arms, he extends his love to you. In God's presence is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. As Alan read from Psalm 16, God's presence is only enjoyed through the mediating work of Christ. There's no eternal glory apart from the Son of God who lived, died, rose, and ascended to heaven's throne. So sinners like you and like me could be reconciled to our Creator. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Toward the end of Melville's Moby Dick, there is a pretty well-known paragraph, somewhat comical, certainly truthful. It reads, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Christian or non-Christian, 
as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are sinners simply by birth, cracked about the head, so to speak, and sadly in need of mending. This mending is only possible through the repair that we find in the arms of the Son of God who became a curse for us so we might know covenant fellowship with God once more. May we as His people run from sin and with softness of hearts be a repenting people, repenting of our stiff-necked pride that wants its own way and yielding to God's call to extend mercy and grace to all who our sovereign Lord appoints to salvation, even those as unlikely and unsavory as the Ninevites, as we'll continue to see as the story unfolds. May God help us to this end. Let's pray. Our Lord, we confess we are too often enamored with the idols of this life. So many other things appeal to our natural hearts, our natural inclinations, such that your words and your counsel to us feels upside down. And yet we know to run from you and to run from your word is to run to death itself. So may we learn from the prophet Jonah. May we hear his words of thanksgiving and the joy of heart to run back to the Lord, run back to the promises of God. And may this be true for this church and these folks assembled here today. We pray that the word of the Lord would run within us, it would have its way. In Christ we pray, amen.